AM840 here. So many of the questions that I was sharing on Saturday night about that attack on Paul Pelosi have now apparently been answered. Now the police are saying the Paul did not know the guy. Paul did not bring him home. Paul did not bring David into his home. That David broke into the home. That David brought the hammers. And David brought these ties. And uh, he, he was going after Nancy Pelosi. So never... No evidence that this is some kind of gay hookup, you know, gone wrong. But let's see what uh, Tucker Carlson has to say. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we've been watching this story all weekend with growing bewilderment. Last Friday morning, as you know, around 2 a.m., police arrived at the home of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. It's in the Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. Inside the home, they found Pelosi's 82-year-old husband, Paul, and another man, 40 years younger, called David DePappi. Nancy Pelosi was out of town at the time. In full view of the police, DePappi hit Paul Pelosi in the head two times with a hammer. Both Pelosi and DePappi were then taken immediately to a local hospital. Pelosi for his head injuries and DePappi for reasons that are still not clear. DePappi was later charged in federal court with assault and attempted kidnapping. At this point, that's what we can say for certain. David DePappi assaulted Paul Pelosi with a hammer. Apparently, DePappi has admitted that in police custody. But beyond those facts, there is much in this story that remains muddy. How, for example, did DePappi get inside the Pelosi's home? That's the first question. Last year, ABC News reported what you already guessed, which is that Pelosi has round-the-clock protection at her houses. Quote, she has her own security. She has the Capitol Police. They fly all the way out here from Washington, D.C. with her. And yet in this case, San Francisco DA Brooke Jenkins says that there was no security present at the Pelosi home on Friday night. And that's pretty strange because, according to multiple accounts, even when Pelosi isn't at home, her houses are well guarded. Again, as you would expect. Our friend Harmeet Dillon told us that when her firm recently tried to serve a lawsuit against Paul Pelosi at various properties he owns, all of them were guarded by, quote, multiple law enforcement officers on the perimeter. So... How did DePappi get past security that apparently wasn't there? And why wasn't it there if, in fact, it wasn't? We know he got inside. And once he was inside, what exactly happened next? Well, accounts of that are changing. At the first press conference on Friday, San Francisco police suggested there was a third person in the home when police arrived. And Politico dutifully reported that, quote, officers arrived at the house, knocked on the front door and were led inside by an unknown person. In other words, by a person who was not David DePappi or Paul Pelosi. Now, Politico never formally corrected this claim. Instead, just two days later, Politico, the same publication, attacked anyone who repeated its own reporting as a crazed conspiracy monger. Quote, pro-Trump commentators weighed in online to raise questions about the investigation based on unfounded and false claims. Among those baseless claims that a third person answered the door when police arrived at the Pelosi home. Okay, three separate adjectives knocking down that idea. But the question remains, was there a third person at the home? We don't know, but it's not crazy to assume there was. Here's how today's charging documents describe the scene inside the house. Quote, when the door was opened, Pelosi and DePappi were both holding a hammer with one hand, and DePappi had his other hand holding onto Pelosi's forearm. Pelosi greeted the officers. The officers asked them what was going on. DePappi responded, everything was good. So it's an awful scene in some ways, but here's the critical clause. When the door was opened, well, opened by whom? Common sense suggests it probably couldn't have been Pelosi or DePappi who opened it. 
they were locked in a life-or-death drama, a struggle over a hammer. The documents filed today assert that Paul Pelosi had never seen David DePappi before. Yet in Pelosi's 911 call, he knew DePappi's first name and apparently referred to him as a friend. Here's the audio. This is from a dispatcher relaying Paul Pelosi's call. Harvey stated that there's a male in the home and that he's going to wait for his wife. Harvey stated that he doesn't know who the male is, but he advised that his name is David and that he is a friend. So what does that mean exactly? Well, again, we don't know and we can't know. We do know that anyone who's ever met Paul Pelosi can tell you he is an awfully nice man. He's warm and he's friendly and he certainly didn't deserve to be hit in the head with a hammer. It's horrifying that he was. But as long as this is a news story with public policy implications, and unfortunately that's what it's become, it is fair to ask the obvious questions as you would about any other violent crime that occurs in America. And especially this one, since so many facts, basic facts, seem to be in dispute. Local KTVU investigative reporter Evan Cernofsky, for example, initially reported that DePappi was, quote, found in underwear when police arrived. Today, Cernofsky made a specific point of retracting that claim, quote, I'm now told by other sources that DePappi was not dressed only in his underwear. Well, okay, fair enough. We'd be satisfied with either explanation, not really our business. But you can't blame, and this is the point, you can't blame people watching all of this at home for thinking that maybe there's something weird going on here. Parts of the official account don't seem to make any sense. So the solution, obviously, is to release the police body cam footage from last Friday. That's often done immediately in cases like this, cases that attract heavy public scrutiny. Transparency restores the public's faith in the system. It is the only thing that does. In fact, that's the whole point of body cams, to reassure people that they can really know what happened. Transparency is the antidote to, quote, misinformation. On the other hand, if you want people to fall headfirst into crazed conspiracy theories, then you would keep lying and hiding things. And yet, for some reason, the San Francisco Police Department is refusing to release Friday's body cam video. We learned that today when we filed a records request. No chance, they said. So until we see that tape, there is a lot that we cannot know. But the main question tonight, the one that's going to affect your life going forward, because this story will affect your life, the question is, who exactly is David DePappi? Many in the media seem studiously uninterested. They don't really want to know. At a police press conference last week, a reporter was caught on a hot mic being instructed by someone not to discuss DePappi in any great detail. So it was left in the end to a journalist who doesn't work for a big media outlet, independent reporter Michael Schellenberger, to fill in some of the blanks. Schellenberger first did the obvious. He went to where DePappi was living, across the bay in Berkeley. You're seeing an image of it on your screen right now. Apparently, DePappi was camping full-time in a dilapidated Ken Kesey-style school bus, complete with a gay pride flag out front and a sign that reads, Berkeley stands against hate. Behind the bus hangs a BLM banner. So politically, this picture could not be clearer. You know where this guy stands. But Schellenberger and others kept digging. They found that DePappi was in fact well-known in the area, in the entire Bay Area, as a hallucinogenic drug enthusiast and a semi-professional nudist. He often appeared at nudist-themed events. Does David DePappi have a prior criminal history? That's an obvious question, and perhaps a relevant one. But we can't answer it because, once again, authorities in San Francisco have refused to tell us or anyone else. We do know that the people around David DePappi believe that he was completely deranged. The ones who knew him best thought that. The San Francisco Chronicle interviewed his ex-girlfriend who reported that DePappi is mentally ill and struggles with drugs. For example, he once thought he was, quote, Jesus for a year. He's never been able to hold a job, said the former girlfriend. He has been homeless. 
This person really does suffer from mental illness, and that is probably why he was there at 2 a.m. She described him as a, quote, broken child in an adult body with serious mental problems. To Pappy's neighbors, who would know, said more or less the same thing. Anything strange about him or anything that stood out? There's something strange about the whole household. <laughs> the entire household is very, very strange. How about him? Um, uh, he is birds of a feather with uh, akin to them. So they are just, you know, nudist drug abusers, and that's who gravitates toward them. So just another homeless, mentally ill drug addict with the fondness for BLM. That's not quite so unusual in San Francisco. Oh, and there's one other highly unsurprising thing about David DePappi. He's also an illegal alien. Today, Fox's Bill Malugin learned that DePappi, who was originally from Canada, has long overstayed his visa. So he is currently in this country illegally. So to restate the perpetrator in this violent crime against Paul Pelosi is a mentally ill, drug-addicted, illegal alien nudist who takes hallucinogens and lives in a hippie school bus in Berkeley with a BLM banner and a pride flag out front. So take those uncontested facts and let them rattle around your brain for a moment until a recognizable pattern emerges. What does this sound like to you? If you guessed this is obviously a textbook case of homegrown right-wing extremism, well, then obviously you've been watching a lot of cable news today. Here's a selection. Is this political violence, in your opinion? It seems to be clear uh, that the, the content of his social media and the statements he allegedly made about where's Nancy, we're going to wait for Nancy, uh, certainly points in that direction. It seems like there's this effort to normalize um, this kind of behavior and to make Trumpers feel, you know, at home and prioritize um, their feelings. This is about election denialism. What has happened over the last two years has seeped into... Uh, the minds and the thoughts of some unstable people. Deranged right-wing fanatics, Trump media allies, and some of the most powerful people in the world were feverishly trying to stir up conspiracy theories that distracted from the central political headline of this story. That years of Republican propaganda and Trump-fueled fascism led 42-year-old David DePap to break into Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco home. <laughs> well, to be fair, the fact that Mika Brzezinski has a high-paying job does give rise to conspiracy theories. I mean, in a fair society, how could that happen? But it has. But the bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, the mentally ill, homeless, illegal alien drug addict who lives in a painted school bus in Berkeley with the BLM flag is actually, despite all appearances, another member of Donald Trump's QAnon army. As CNN commentator David Axelrod put it, far-right conspiracy theories are to blame here. And of course, Jen Rubin at the Washington Post accused right-wing Republicans of inciting violence against the Pelosi family using this illegal alien homeless guy on drugs. The far right demonized Pelosi and that led to the attack, read a banner on MSNBC. So on what grounds, other than political desperation, are they saying things like this? Well, according to some reports, the homeless, mentally ill, drug-addicted, illegal alien David DePappi somehow maintained websites with right-wing content on them. One of these sites was apparently called FriendlyFriends.com. And the strange thing about that website is that the web address for it was registered back in September, but there's content on the site that is backdated to August. And Internet archiving services didn't register any content from that blog, apparently David DePappi's blog, until October 28th. That was the day of DePappi's attack on Paul Pelosi. 
On October 28th, FriendlyFriends.com suddenly included a bunch of incoherent posts about UFOs and Peter Navarro. I'm not making that up. Those are the facts. What do they mean? Well, it's a right-wing conspiracy, obviously. Better indict Marjorie Taylor Greene for the crime. So keep in mind, as you shake your head in bewilderment at all of this, that the midterm elections are next Tuesday, and Democrats are in trouble, and they believe the attack on Paul Pelosi might help them. As Margaret Brennan explained over on CBS, because a mentally ill illegal alien attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband it is now immoral to criticize the leader of Democrats a week before an election. Savor this. Republican candidates have spent more than $116 million on ads that mention Speaker Pelosi by name in this cycle. If this is about the issues, why don't you make it about the issue? We are eight days result. out. Don't you think this needs to change? Why not Again. pull some of these out? Why do you make it about the issues? Said the lady who spent four years screaming about Donald Trump, the man. It's hilarious and brazen and shameless. And the second the midterms are over, they'll stop. But the point is, as always, all the journalists, journalists, got the same memo, and they're all running with the same memo. Of course, using exactly the same words. Ashley Parker at the Washington Post wrote this, quote, In 2022, the GOP spent $40 million vilifying Pelosi in ads, and on Friday, her husband was attacked by a hammer. Do you see the direct correlation? If you criticize Nancy Pelosi, obviously you're endangering her family. Of course, she does run the political party that's facing re-election right now that controls the United States Congress. She's third in line from the presidency, but you can't criticize her because if you do, you're just like your acolyte, Paul DePappy. So the Republican Party clearly needs to stop running advertisements that hurt Democrats ahead of the midterms, please. That's the problem here, not the mentally ill BLM nudist in Berkeley. So what they're really arguing is in the wake of this attack, which is awful against someone who did not deserve it, and we want to be clear about that, Paul Pelosi really is a nice guy. Hard to believe, but he is. But in the wake of that, they're telling you, unfortunately, you can no longer have free speech. Well, you can't. They're telling you this is an example of stochastic terrorism, which is a completely meaningless phrase that emerged like a virus out of the university to infect our public discourse, or more precisely, to suppress our public discourse. Reuters has reported that, and we're quoting, terrorism and extremism experts believe it could be an example of the growing threat of so-called stochastic terrorism in which sometimes unstable individuals are inspired to violence by hate speech. Okay. What is hate speech, by the way? All of a sudden, everyone in the media has, sort of without explaining why, agreed that there's this thing called hate speech that's real and probably actionable. They can find a billion-dollar judgment against you if you commit hate speech. But just to remind everyone watching, there's no such thing as hate speech. Hate speech is speech people hate, usually the people in power. The truth is, all speech, except speech that encourages people to imminent illegal action, like go shoot that guy. Short of that, there's no hate speech. All of it's allowed under the United States Constitution, which is our final hope. But what they're telling you is that dissenting in any way from the editorial positions of, say, the Washington Post or the Daily Beast or the Atlantic Magazine, disagreeing with those publications and the consensus they represent isn't simply immoral. No, it's worse than that. It's violence. It gets people killed. That's the stochastic terrorism. When you question, say, COVID protocols or drag queen story hour or the war against Russia, you are effectively smashing an 82-year-old man in the head with a hammer. They're making that argument. And, of course, they have no choice but to make that argument. Democrats are very worried about the coming elections, but they're absolutely terrified that Elon Musk may allow people to criticize them on Twitter. 
And they know what Republicans don't seem to know, which is without censorship, the Democratic Party cannot continue to hold power. Democrats understand that. They have nothing to offer. They have to stop you from asking questions. So they have to crush Elon Musk, not because he's a right winger, but because he will allow their opponents to speak. And of course, they are using the attack on poor Paul Pelosi to do just that. The New York Times has just come out with a piece that says, and we're quoting, Elon Musk in a tweet shares a link from a site known to publish fake news. Really? What did Elon Musk do? Well, he linked to an article about how Paul Pelosi called the guy in his home a friend. Well, that's what the 911 tape says. You can draw your own conclusions or not. or Maybe you don't care, which is also fine. How is that fake? It seems to be real. NBC News' Ben Collins explained that Musk's tweets are, quote, how you lose a democracy in the age of the Internet. Oh, by asking questions. Jimmy Kimmel attacked Musk personally. Used to be a comic. Sad to watch that decline. It's been interesting, Kimmel wrote to Musk, to watch you blossom from the electric car guy into a fully formed piece of human excrement. Then CNN told its viewers today that in the wake of the attack on Paul Pelosi, Elon Musk can no longer let people speak freely on Twitter. That was his plan, but no more. In the wake of the attack on Pelosi, Musk must retain, quote, what the far right calls censorship. Oh, the far right. But you don't need to be far right to identify it as censorship because censorship is exactly what it is. And to restate, Democrats could no longer exist or hold power without it. They need censorship. And they're going to try to use this horrifying crime to hold on to it. But something else is going on here, too. Something beneath even all of that. Obviously, by immediately politicizing the attacks, Democrats get a lot, potentially. But the main thing they do is effectively obscure the deepest truth of all, which is that what happened to Paul Pelosi is not so unusual anymore. Crime in this country is out of control by every measure. Attacks by the mentally ill homeless, even non-nudists who don't live in buses, but the mentally ill homeless are now their own category. They're a feature of life in our cities. In fact, of every part of this country controlled by the Democratic Party. If you live in one of those places, no matter who you vote for, you know that that's true. Get pushed in front of a subway train by one of them. That's entirely real. Here's one recent and especially awful example from California. A 54-year-old man and his 22-year-old daughter were just stabbed to death in the parking lot of a Coles in Palmdale by a mentally ill homeless man. Not an unusual story, but a particularly awful one. Here's a local news account. Residents say there are multiple homeless encampments in the area and that people are known to live out of their cars in the back of this particular parking lot. Everyone said they're shocked by the violence. For me, I was like dumbfounded this thing. Like, wait, somebody just got stabbed in broad daylight? I mean, like, again, it doesn't matter if it's daylight or nighttime, but the fact that people have the audacity, which means, hey, people don't care, you know, especially when you're dealing with the type of mentalities that these homeless people have, they don't care. So to find out, like, wait a minute, somewhere where I go and shop to get gas in my, my bank is right here, but then some dead person is right there. That's infuriating and sad. So to restate with heartfelt sincerity, we couldn't feel worse about what happened to Paul Pelosi. He didn't deserve it. On the other hand, if you're going to be injured in a violent crime in 2022, not so surprising that that crime was committed by a mentally ill homeless man, because so many crimes are committed by mentally ill homeless people. A fact that everyone who lives in a city understands perfectly well, and the people who are making it possible, the leaders of the Democratic Party, assiduously ignore. This summer, a nonprofit director in San Francisco, for example, a man called James Spignola, asked two homeless men to move away from the steps of a community center. In response, the homeless men violently beat him with a wooden plank and sent him to the hospital. This happened at 11 a.m. in broad daylight. This happens 
all the time. And here's the point. The psycho drug-addled zombies who do it are usually released the same day to do it again. Everyone knows that. It's not an accident. It's the result of policy, policies that Nancy Pelosi supports in her own city. But in this case, the guy did not walk because it happened at Nancy Pelosi's house. So the guy is still in jail. He's not benefiting from cashless bail. The police got there in two minutes in San Francisco. That's four times faster than the average, res average response time in San Francisco. Four times. So the lesson here couldn't be more obvious, and their screaming is designed to keep you from reaching this conclusion. But here it is. Nancy Pelosi and her party, the Democratic Party, it's not an overstatement to say this, have deliberately created a breakdown in law and order and safety and quality of life in your neighborhood, yet they are given special treatment themselves when it happens to them. So you can grieve the attack on Paul Pelosi and see it as horrifying, because it is, and still understand that the response to it would not be extended to you. It's a double standard. It's a two-tiered system of justice that's completely unacceptable, and it's not justice, in fact. It's the opposite. So the media ought to be saying something about this. This is happening. This crime specifically happened, but so many others have happened because of policies designed to allow them to happen. And someone in the press should point that out. Hey, Paul Pelosi's not the only guy who got attacked by a nutcase homeless guy this month. But they're not saying that. And because they're not saying that, Democratic politicians get to skate. And not just skate, but to grandstand on Republican violence in ways that any person with a sense of shame would be totally incapable of doing because you'd hate yourself for doing it. But they don't hate themselves. They'll say whatever it takes. On the very same day that Barack Obama blamed Republicans for assaulting Paul Pelosi, Obama was campaigning in Wisconsin for Tony Evers. Does that name sound familiar? That's the governor who let homicidal mobs take over the city of Kenosha two years ago for political reasons. Watch this. We've got politicians who work to stir up division, to try to make us angry and afraid of one another for their own advantage. And all of it gets amped up, hyped up 24-7 by social media. Because a lot of times, those are, they're for-profit platforms, and they find it more profitable to feed you controversy and conflict instead of facts and truth. And, and, and sometimes it, it can turn dangerous. Oh, your speech turns dangerous. Other people are stirring up resentment. Really, no president in American history ever caused, intentionally caused, more racial division, more race hate than Barack Obama did. Of course, it was the key to his second term, obviously. But the solution to something that he did is prohibiting you from saying what you think. Shutting down your constitutionally protected right, your God-given right to say what you think is true is always the solution because they conflate words with violence when it suits them. In Georgia last week, Barack Obama said Democrats, the party that defunded the police, the Democratic Party, somehow, he said, bears no responsibility for the rise in violent crime all over the country. In fact, Obama pretended Democrats had not voted to defund the police at all. Who actually voted against more resources for the police departments? Yes. It's like, if you'll say anything, maybe it works. Yeah. And whoever sees Baltimore and Gary, Indiana and Minneapolis and New York and Seattle and Portland, Oregon, how are those cities doing? 
Speaking of shamelessness, Kathy Hochul just went on Al Sharpton's show to claim that the crime wave, the one that you're watching, the one that may have hurt you or killed one of your neighbors, it's all fake. In a statement that is crazier than anything Alex Jones has ever thought, they have this going all across America to try and convince people that in democratic states they're not as safe. Well, guess what? They're also not only election deniers, they're data deniers. The data shows that shootings and murders are down in our state by 15%, even in New York City, down 20% on Long Island, where Lee Zeldin comes from. So that's just a lie, actually. New York is so dangerous that people are leaving. Rents haven't gone down because foreign investors are buying up a lot of the buildings, but people are leaving New York in droves, of course. But according to Kathy Hochul, in a claim that is truly crazier than anything Alex Jones has ever even thought, in the shower to himself, Kathy Hochul is telling you that the data are fake. So here you have a city in which, New York City, subway ridership has dropped by 40% over the last two years. Now, according to Kathy Hochul, it's not because subway riders are being pushed in front of trains, people being attacked by mentally ill homeless. No, it's because apparently millions of New Yorkers are watching Fox News and they've been fooled by right-wing propaganda into thinking the subway is dangerous. That's what she's suggesting. This is too stupid. This is a lie. Voters know it's a lie. And when Democrats get crushed in next week's midterms, it'll be in part because people who live in cities and states run by liberals Understand that what happened to Paul Pelosi could very well happen to them, and no one would care. Morning Joe would pretend it never happened. So Republican Carrie Lake is running for governor in Arizona. You wouldn't think it would be a race that would draw national attention, but permanent Washington is completely freaked out because they see in her the future, and it's not a future in which they win. Carrie Lake joins us straight ahead with details. Okay, let's think more about the Paul Pelosi story. What would happen if if someone else was attacked who wasn't married to Nancy Pelosi? I mean, in, in a Democrat-run city. I mean, police response is way down. Police have been suffering reduced funding. They've had all sorts of incentives to cut back on law enforcement. Right? We've encouraged an anti-police attitude in this country. Our elites have, the media have, over the past two, two years and three months, five months. So what would happen to an ordinary person who suffered the exact same thing? And I think it, it'd be very nice what would happen to them. Right? We know that uh, crime rates are a choice. Right? Incidents like what happened to Paul Pelosi are a social choice. We decide our crime rates, right? These types of crimes get committed overwhelmingly by about 1% of the population. Now, we can lock up that part of the population, and we were on track to do that during the 1980s and 1990s where we passed three strikes and you're out in California and other legislation like that, right? So crime rates are a choice. Incidents like what happened to Paul Pelosi are a choice, and uh, Bill Barr made this point in a great op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last week. The violent crime surge is entirely preventable. It is caused by progressive policies and left-wing politicians reverting to the same reckless revolving door policies of the 1960s and 70s that produced the greatest tsunami of violent crime in American history. And it was entirely preventable. 
wasn't entirely preventable. It was just 90% preventable. We reversed that earlier crime wave with tough anti-crime measures adopted during the Reagan-Bush era. We can stop this one as well. Right? You have super predators. You have a small number of hardcore habitual offenders, about 1% of the population, responsible for about two-thirds of predatory violent crime. So you lock these people up. The primary way to reduce violent crime is to keep super predators off the streets. You hold these people in prison, then thousands of people in this country will not be murdered. Right? You just need laws and judges to enforce laws and district attorneys to go after these guys and lock them up. So before 1960, violent crime in the United States was modest and stable, though... For as long as we've been keeping statistics, African-Americans have committed murder at uh, no less than about six to eight times the rate of white Americans. So that's always been a problem in this country for as long as we've been keeping statistics. But when liberal reformers pushed to turn state justice systems into revolving doors, right, violent offenders were quickly released into parole. Violent crime exploded, right, went up essentially by approximately five times between 1960 and 1991. Then in the 1980s, Republicans started locking up violent offenders. The nation's prison population rose from 300,000 to 700,000. This flattened the rate of violent crime. Then we started locking people up even more. So by 1992, we'd started to turn the trajectory on violent crime and the rate of violent crime started falling for the first time in decades. So it's a choice. We can choose to live in a safe society where these super predators are put behind bars. I can't believe I'm going to play something from Tim Pool. And uh, one of the biggest stories in the history of the United States. I, I, I can't believe it. I mean, it's, it's, it's 2 p.m. And here I am doing another live stream just following the, the Friday stream. I don't normally do this, but this news is so massive. I had to go live as soon as I could. And I wanted to give some breathing room for the segment I just put up on my other channel. But this is it. Let me stress again. The Intercept has dropped hard evidence, text messages, documents showing the Biden administration has been coordinating censorship efforts with Twitter, Facebook, Microsoft, big tech to manipulate public opinion, to control narratives on racial justice, COVID and potential and, and, and the election in 2020. It's here. Now, I know most of you are probably saying uh, many of you are probably saying we knew this and you're correct. I have I have a tweet from Benny Johnson. You had Jen Psaki outright saying the government was working on some of these proposals. We've known about this passively, but all along the way, you've had big media saying, no, 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 you misunderstand what's happening. It's not collusion. It's not censorship. Now it's here. Vijaya Gade, just fired by Elon Musk, was reported to have been having regular meetings with the feds to discuss censorship activities. And there it is. Now, naturally, you know, the first thing I did when I saw the story was I, I, I immediately I'm spamming Joe Rogan like, dude, we sat down across from this person who lied to our faces and the American public. And this is probably why Vijaya Gade cried when the news broke about Elon Musk buying the platform. This is also likely why we got reporting that the Biden administration, the federal government was potentially seeking to intervene to stop Elon Musk from acquiring Twitter. Elon already just last night leaked evidence that the Twitter board was withholding information from the courts. Now that was big, but that's a civil issue. I got to say, my friends, did I call it or did I call it when I said, and, you, and many of you probably heard me say this, that Elon Musk went to buy the platform. And what did he see? National security letters or something to that effect. Okay, let's uh, see what uh, Tucker Carlson has to say on this story. I thought uh, Tucker might cover it, and here he is. So Twitter, Facebook meeting regularly with DHS every week. 
Earlier this year, the Department of Homeland Security published its, established its own Ministry of Truth. It was so ridiculous it had to be disbanded almost immediately. The woman running it was so far out, she was a parody and discredited the censorship movement. But that doesn't mean DHS has stopped trying to censor you. Oh, they are. You just didn't know about it. Thanks to The Intercept, which just obtained many years of internal documents from DHS, we know that companies like Facebook and Twitter have been working closely with the Biden administration to, quote, curb speech that the administration doesn't approve of. Emails also show that Twitter's top censor, Vijay Gotti, which is fired by Elon Musk, met every month with the Biden administration censors at DHS to talk about new ways to get you to shut up in unconstitutional fashion. Lee Fang broke this story. He's an investigative journalist at The Intercept. He joins us tonight. Lee, thanks so much for coming on. This seems like a really important story, which is for some reason being ignored. Um, do we get the outlines thanks right? For having the me. administration is working with the tech companies to censor people. Yeah, that's right. You know, Tucker, uh, we looked at really hundreds of documents that paint a vivid picture of the FBI, the DHS, closely collaborating with the top social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, to censor uh, various forms of content under the banner of fighting disinformation. And the story shows a couple of things. One, it shows what you just mentioned, a very cozy relationship between the government and these tech giants. Um, there's those monthly meetings that you just mentioned, uh, but also just very cozy emails and, and texts. Um, not a very adversarial relationship. You know, we looked at one text where Microsoft executive texts uh, Jen Easterly, the top disinfo um, director at DHS appointed by Biden, basically saying the government needs to get, the private sector needs to get more comfortable with the government. Um, they're closely collaborating on reports talking about the expanded role for DHS in censoring a really broad uh, collection of, of, of topic areas, of, of, of policy and political topics. And, you know, just broadly speaking, uh, the story also just looks at the mission creep of DHS. This, this is an agency that was founded in the aftermath of 9-11 to combat foreign terror threats of al-Qaeda and the like. Um, but over the last five years, it's kind of uh, evolved in its mission. It's moved towards fighting disinfo, and their justification is, you know, uh, disinformation radicalizes uh, the homeland. It can lead to disruptions in public health or in political violence. Um, so they, they, yeah. they have a justification. We have these documents, and, and they're pushing forward uh, with this broad uh, censorship agenda. Criticizing the people in charge is dangerous. Um, you know, I, I don't know why you did this story at the, at the Intercept. I'm just so grateful that you did. It's a great story. It's a huge public service. I hope you're rewarded for it. I doubt you will be, but you should be. Lee Fang, thank you very well, much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So most Republican voters believe that if Liz Cheney attacks you, you're probably someone they want to vote for. Okay, so I want to actually praise the, the mainstream media. They did push back effectively against a lot of nonsense with regard to the Paul Pelosi story. Uh, things on, on Twitter and on mainstream websites and in the police audio that we heard that are not correct. So how did the break-in happen? So... Wayne DePappy was not someone that Paul Pelosi brought home, right? Wayne DePappy broke through a glass door in the home using a hammer. He said Paul Pelosi was in bed at the time, appeared surprised by him. DePappy did not know Paul Pelosi. Uh, Paul Pelosi woke, woke up. He asked DePappy how could they resolve the situation. And then uh, Paul Pelosi went to the bathroom where he called out 911. Now, what's interesting is the police showed up in four minutes 
And so San Francisco police officer arrived at the house like four minutes later, knocked at the front door, and Paul Pelosi and Wayne DePappy, they went downstairs to the front door, and no violence had happened at this point. So Paul Pelosi opened the front door for the police, and then Paul Pelosi grabbed the hammer in DePappy's hand. And then a police officer saw Paul Pelosi and DePappy both holding a hammer. The officers asked the man what was happening. Wayne DePappy responded, everything was good. Police told him to drop the hammer. Then DePappy pulled the hammer away from Paul Pelosi and swung it, hitting him in the head. So why didn't why didn't the police just uh, restrain Wayne DePappy right off? Who owned the hammer? Not Paul Pelosi's hammer, as was speculated Saturday night. I, I read that speculation on a live stream. So apparently it was Wayne DePappy's hammer. What was the motivation for the attack? Apparently Wayne DePappy wanted to lure Nancy Pelosi to some other person. And what did authorities recover from Wayne DePappy? A phone, clip cards, cash, uh, hammers, rubber gloves, cloth gloves, a journal, and zip ties. What was DePappy wearing? All right, these guys were not in their underwear, as I read Saturday night. Right, so you had a San Francisco news station and an investigative reporter in San Francisco say that uh, he heard that Wayne DePappy was in his underwear. Not true. Did Paul Pelosi and Wayne DePappy know each other before the attack? Nope. Was Wayne DePappy living in a home that supported Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ? So this is what Ben Shapiro said and Michael Schellenberger said. But uh, the Berkeley home displaying these left-wing flags and signs, right, this was DePappy's former home but he no longer resided there. And DePappy had just started blogging in early September, apparently. So anyway, let's get back to this Tim Pool thing. Fact. And now we're seeing there were direct communications between executives at Twitter and other companies with FBI agents, with DHS, with what's called CISA, C-I-S-A. I wonder if Elon Musk got this information pre-sale and said, I can't get involved in this. I wonder. Maybe not. Maybe not. But I think two big things. Let me stress again, for everybody who's coming into this story right now, this may be one of the biggest stories of our lives. It is potentially the biggest story of our lives, and it is likely one of the biggest stories in U.S. history. The federal government was colluding with media platforms to manufacture consent and subvert our elections. It's here. Intercept. NewsGuard certified with hard documents. Here's what I think. I think the reason this is coming out is twofold. One, they know they're going to lose in, in the next week or so. And this means you're going to get a bunch of MAGA Republicans on committees dumping this information, demanding inquiries, filing subpoenas. People are going to get in serious trouble. Get it out now. But more importantly, with Elon Musk acquiring Twitter, they likely knew this was coming. And so they said, get it out now. Get it out fast. Get ahead of it. The best thing they could do, get ahead of it. Wait till you see some of this stuff. Let me just, let me give you a sampler. Because I want to make sure there's, you know, we're a couple minutes into this. In, into this, And I want to make sure people are aware of exactly what we're seeing right now. Look at this. Facebook and Twitter created special portals for the government to rapidly request takedowns. The emails and documents show that Twitter's Vijaya Gade was meeting monthly with the DHS for censorship plans, even advocating, saying more platforms need to get on board with this. I hope you are ready for this one, my friends, because this is big. Okay. All right. The last time I did this stream, I forgot to press record and I forgot to press it again. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll get this one done. Um, before we get started, head over to TimCast.com. Become a member if you want to support our... The Intercept is NewsGuard certified. Does not publish false content. 87.5 out of 100. You got a problem with it, YouTube? Take it up with your buddies over at the DHS. Here we go. Okay. So notice Tim Pool, very effective. All right. Rising intonation creates a sense of excitement because the voice rises in pitch as he goes through the sentence so you just can't wait to know what he's going to say next 
The Department of Homeland Security is quietly broadening its efforts to curb speech it considers dangerous. An investigation by The Intercept has found years of internal DHS memos, emails and documents obtained via leaks and an ongoing lawsuit, as well as public documents, illustrate an expansive effort by the agency to influence tech platforms. This is not just about leaked documents. This is Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who launched a lawsuit and got much of this released. Take a look at this. The work, much of which remains unknown to the American public, came into clear review earlier this year when DHS announced a new disinformation governance board, a panel designed to police misinformation. Uh, misinformation and dis- Okay, I think we got the overview of this story, but it's an important story. That That's why I, I'm playing some Tim Pool. Right, here's uh, Mickey Kaus talking with Robert Wright about why Russians are so racist. Yeah, yeah, that, that's probably what was going to oh, happen, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I have a Russian friend who says Russians are such racist that they assume that anybody who is black is stupid. So they thought that Obama was stupid. Is, is that true? It's not like, you know, it's not like they're it's not like they're racist in the sense that well the average mean test score of blacks is below whites no they're racist in the sense that every black person is stupid okay uh, and I don't know maybe they thought they could bamboozle General Austin who knows ah I was wondering I was wondering what ah talking. so they uh, thought they could bamboozle so, General um, Lloyd Austin on China the Sad. way Trump did maybe even more so oh yeah I, th- oh, he's I think declared war this chip thing is big yeah so the idea the idea that he's in the pocket of the Chinese seems implausible oh it's not it's not uh, and Trump has made me in- yeah making the point that the idea that Joe Biden's in the pocket of the Chinese seems implausible inured me to uh, it, it may be more tolerant of people who lie and people who are corrupt since Trump is obviously both and yet and so Mickey's making the point he's no longer voting on character. He's voting on, you know, which candidate you think will be more effective on the issues that Mickey cares most about. I still like his policies and thought that overrode the corruption and the lying. Mm-hmm. So the same standard applies to Biden. If I liked his policies, 10% for the big guy wouldn't be a definitive disqualifier, even if I thought it was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's the trouble. I bet that, but the press, I think, will, you know, have other fish to fry and the fish will be get Biden out of the way quickly so that by the time the election rolls around, the party is embroiled in turmoil. I think Biden will realize this. He's a party guy. He's not going to, unless he's convinced he's the only person who could stop Trump, he's not going to run. I don't think he is the only person who could stop Trump. I think it's going to be hard to usher him Okay, interesting noticing the difference between European and American reactions to Elon Musk taking over Twitter. So here's a former official at Twitter, right? A big deal. This guy was. If he brings Donald Trump back, uh, will it be... All, all, all things on the table. Can Donald Trump say exactly what he wants? Or would the things that got him suspended before effectively trying to in, invoke an insurrection, would that get him suspended again? Would his friend, would Elon Musk's friend, Kanye West, be permitted to continue spouting anti-Semitism and racism like he's been doing for the last few weeks? So I think, you know, beware of simple answers to complicated problems. I think right now, Elon's going to find himself right in the zone where he realises just po- posting memes isn't a solution to some pretty complex, uh, some pretty complex challenges, I think. Well, he's, he's paid a fruity price. I think if you compared, if you benchmarked it against Facebook meta shares, he's probably paid three or four times the value of the business. Okay, so former it's, VP it's of definitely Twitter an expensive UK, indulgence for him to take on board. And when, uh, when you look at the takeover, Bruce, is this where you would have expected the social network you joined some years ago to end up as the plaything of a, as a, of a Silicon Valley tech bro? Yeah, I mean, look, I think it gives us an illustration why governments around the world are taking things into their own hands. The EU has just passed a law, which is it won't come into action for another 14 months, but effectively it brings some regulation to, to the, the social platforms. And albeit that we've got a law that is faltering through our stop-start governmental system. That I suspect billionaires' whims are no longer going to be the, the critical thing here going forward. Oh, thank God, thank God. The EU is on the case. They're going to censor social media more. 
he's presented with a couple of really big choices. And I think the overall adage is beware of simple answers to complicated problems. You know, he's going to be faced with a challenge if he brings Donald Trump back. Uh, will it be all, all, all things on the table? So simple answers like free speech is a good thing, guys. That, that's way too simple. Surely you're more sophisticated than that. Well, can Donald Trump say exactly what he wants? Or would the things that got him suspended before effectively trying to in, invoke an insurrection, would that get him suspended again? Would his friend, would Elon Musk's friend, Kanye West, be permitted to continue spouting anti-Semitism and racism like he's been doing for the last few weeks? So I think, you know, beware of simple answers to complicated problems. I think right now Elon's going to find himself right in the zone where he realizes just po posting memes isn't a solution to some pretty complex, uh, some pretty complex challenges, I think. Yeah, because as you say, they're very complex challenges. And, and during your time at the company, you left in, in 2020. Uh, you obviously experienced these firsthand. Um, just looking back at, in your time in the company, how, how did it change and how did, how did its role in politics change during the time you were at Twitter? Yeah, I joined 10 years ago. I left a couple of years ago. At the very first inception, Twitter was a quite frivolous place where people would post about, you know, Jonathan Ross would tweet to Stephen Fry. It was this sort of carefree place. And I think what we learned very quickly is that because it's such a effective means of communicating what you're saying, it was really strongly appropriated by politics. Names that we'd never heard of before were able to rise. You know, the, the reason why everyone knows Greta Thunberg's name is because she used social media platforms very effectively. So it's been this powerful force for, I guess, cutting out the middle the middle people, the, the middle of media, and it's been very effective. Along the way, that power has been misappropriated. So we've seen... So I guess it's, it's Halloween tonight. Now I will not be handing out candy. It's strictly, strictly against the terms of my probation. All right, Kara Swisher is a lefty, but she, she makes a very good point here about how America is very different from other countries. What's to come? Shouldn't we be turning to them and say, hey, guys, what have you been up to? They can't they put anything. us in this position. They, they can't do anything. It's, it's, they can't do anything. it's a private. Well, no, we have a First Amendment, and so they can't do anything. If you're talking about that, they could do a privacy bill, and that. But Twitter's not really known for that. Other companies have more issues around privacy, but there's almost nothing that Congress can do at this moment for this, except make them liable, move around two thirty a little bit. And so, if there's some really, you know, if an Alex Jones type personality is allowed to run free on the platform, they can be sued for defamation. But, but Alex that's Jones at was this moment, Kara. They've had yeah. years. They've had years <laughs> to put smart regulation around social media platforms and have done nothing. And that's how we ended up here. Right. But there is none. There is no smart legislation to make. It's privacy legislation. It's antitrust legislation. It's it's other legislation. But there, there's no way there's going to be any speech regulation from this Congress or any Congress to come. Um, it's a it's a it's sort of the third rail of politics in that regard. Um, and so I don't see that being the issue. I think the issue is is how they treat the data of, of consumers is really where you're. And again, will that have an effect? This right. So a very big difference between this uh, former UK vice president uh, of Twitter saying that, you know, Elon Musk is going to have to kowtow to governments. Right? The headline on this story, why governments might bring Elon Musk's Twitter dream to an end. From an American perspective, that's just absolutely, you know, impossible. There's no way that the government is going to effectively intervene with Twitter and dictate what its uh, speech codes should be like. Okay, let's go back to Merve Emery. A singular entity, not an abstraction or an impersonal force. Nothing we might associate with social or collective cognition. Right, so she's talking here about the personal essay versus the impersonal essay. She is an American professor of Turkish background. She is at the Oxford Center for Life Writing. A list of antonyms to the personal essay might include the structural essay, the communal essay, the public essay, the political essay, the critical essay, or the impersonal essay. Or as Adorno insinuates in the epigraph to this talk, the good essay, which prioritizes elucidating the matter at hand 
instead of telling stories about people as bad essays do. Okay, so bad essays are telling stories about people, the good essays are about topics. So in her essay, The Illusion of the First Person, in the November 3rd edition of the New York Review of Books, Mervé Emery claims the individual is a fiction. And it just seems to be emblematic of many of our elite's attitudes towards regular people. So obviously, the individual is never only an individual. They have other identities. But this elite attitude, this Mervé Emery opinion that... Uh, no such thing as an individual is just plain bonkers like how on earth could a smart woman like this oxford scholar believe that the individual is a fiction and i think the best explanation is she's been overtaken by the insanity insanity that's just endemic to her intellectual class and there's a great explanation for this insanity by an oxford english literature professor john Kerry in his 1993 book the intellectuals and the masses pride and prejudice among the literary intelligentsia 1880 to 1939 so he makes the point that modernist literature and art can be seen as a hostile reaction to the unprecedentedly large reading public created by late 19th century educational reform. So in the 19th century, the first time we've got a majority of populations in the Western world who are literate and they start turning to newspapers and to books. And so the realm of literacy, books, publications was once the primary preserve of intellectuals. Now the ordinary people are getting their hands on it. So John Kerry notes that the purpose of modernist writing is to exclude these newly educated and newly literate readers and thus to preserve the intellectual seclusion from the great mass of people. So the subhead to Mervé Emery's essay reads, Historical survey of the personal essay shows it to be the purest expression of the lie that individual subjectivity exists prior to the social formations that gave rise to it. So there's no individual subjective experience prior to society? I mean, what about those who grew up outside society? Did they get to have a genuine inner life? And who constructs society? Right, many people on the left just want to talk society, society, Marxism, you know, economic forces, social forces. But who constructs these forces? Who constructs society? It is individuals with subjective experiences. So do these subjective individual experiences shape society? Yes in addition to being shaped by society. So there's no one directional path here, right? Individuals shape society, society shapes individuals. So Merve Emery begins her essay with this quote from Theodore Adorno. The essay form bears some responsibility for the fact that bad essays tell stories about people instead of elucidating the matter at hand, which sounds a lot like the sentiments of Virginia Woolf. And naturally, Merve Emery is a Virginia Woolf scholar. So shortly before she died, Virginia Woolf, you know, recorded in her journal that uh, doesn't care for, for big women or these fat women just stuffing their faces. They eat, eat, eat. There's just something shoddy and parasitic about them. You know, where does the money come to feed these fat white slugs? Now, when Virginia Woolf wrote this entry, John Kerry comment, she only had a short time to live. So madness and suicide were soon to claim her. The harmless chatter that she listens to with rage and loathing is reminiscent of the women's conversations that we overhear in the second part of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. So the women that uh, Virginia Woolf are overhearing are not slugs. You know, they're not tarts. You know, Woolf imagines these women. She's infuriated by what she's imagining. So these intellectual imaginations of the great mass of people are frequently this stimulus to fury, loathing, and fear. That's why Tucker Carlson talks about, you know, why did the, why did the elite hate us? Like, where do they loathe us? And 
Barack Obama condemns people clinging to their guns and their religion. How primitive of that is that? So for many on the elite, they just have this phobia about the great mass of people. Right? It's an intellectual phobia. It's circular, it's self-deluding, and probably a form of insanity. So Merve Emery begins her writing, the personal essay is a genre that is difficult to define but easy to denounce. Why is it so easy to denounce? Because it's about people, often just regular people who don't have PhDs. What makes essays that tell stories about individual people, their bodies, their personalities, and their private lives bad? For Adorno, as for Walter Benjamin, whom Adorno names as his favorite essayist, essays about people betray an irresponsibility to their true object private individual. The private individual is not a particular person with a particular story to tell, no matter how distinctive, original, or purely bizarre the elements of that story may be. The private individual is not a proper name, neither Virginia Woolf nor Elizabeth Hardwick, not Joan Didion, David Foster Wallace, John Jeremiah Sullivan, or whomever you consider to be your favorite personal essayist. It is not the essay's author or its narrator. Rather, it is the idea that animates all of these figures, the powerful and unobtrusive concept that gives the personal essay the appearance of ventriloquizing a singular and spontaneous subjectivity. Okay, let's look a little more deeply here at uh, Mervy Emery. So she says the offending element in the personal essay is its content, the personal. It's a permanent temptation for a form whose suspiciousness of false profundity does not protect it from turning it into a slick superficiality, writes Theodore Adorno. So why is the personal just so delicious for these people to denounce? Maybe it is only delicious to denounce for people like Merve Emery. Why are structural, communal, public, critical, and impersonal essays just inherently superior to my subjective, personal, lived experience? Like, why is the impersonal essay just inherently superior to the personal essay. Like, where exactly is that established? In which heaven is that written? So Emery's arguments, ironically, are largely her subjective opinions, but they're presented as objective truths. There's no inherent reason that the personal is of less importance than the structural and the impersonal. Who decreed otherwise, and why should we listen to him? So we got popular newspapers in the late 19th century, all right, as more and more people became literate and intellectuals just despised the idea that newspapers would come along and give the public what they wanted to intellectuals this sounded ominous intellectuals believe in giving the public what intellectuals want right the new york times believes in giving you what the new york times wants they don't particularly care what you want right this is what intellectuals mean by education it means giving people you know what they want to hand over not uh, listen to the peasants. So the popular newspaper in the late 19th century and then TV in the 20th century, now the internet in the 21st century, presents a threat to the monopoly that intellectuals used to enjoy over matters of, of culture and matters of the intellect, right? The popular newspaper and then TV and radio and the internet have created alternative cultures which frequently bypass intellectuals and make the, the intellectual redundant. So journalism has adopted sales figures as their sole criterion for excellence, and they have circumvented the traditional cultural elite. 
They have taken over the function of providing the public often with fiction, thus dispensing with the need for elite novelists. So we've got an emergence in the late 19th century of the human interest story. Stories about individuals. And it provides the readers with, with great pleasure because we are naturally wired to be interested in other people, right? What are human interest stories for? Well, it's the same answer as the question, what are novels for? To, to expand our world, to, to go deeply into lives. So among intellectuals, hostility to newspapers was near universal. Then hostility to TV and to radio and, and to the internet and to social media. So you got the spread of literacy to the masses in the 19th century impelling intellectuals in the early 20th century to produce a new mold of culture, modernism, that the masses could not enjoy. So now you get a new availability of culture through radio and TV and other popular media, such as the internet and YouTube. And this has driven intellectuals to evolve an anti-popular cultural mode that can just reprocess all existing culture and take it out of the reach of the majority. This is the post-structuralism or deconstruction of Jacques Derrida. And the first thing that they want to attack is intelligibility. So a YouTube live stream, a TV program, a mass circulation periodical or newspaper must be intelligible to build an audience, right? And the, the elite waged war on the, the whole notion of intelligibility. They said, ah, oh, you think you can understand something? Well, let me deconstruct that. And a second popular feature that the intellectuals have waged war on is this whole human interest angle. So major factor in TV's breadth of appeal is it's focused on human interest. It's focused on personality. So you get interviews with writers, actors, directors. You get programs about authors and artists' biography. Right Now theory, elite academic theory, frequently dismisses any such biographical approaches as trivial and irrelevant. It denies that there is any ascertainable connection between authors, artists, and the meaning of the works that they create. This is very uh, Nietzschean. And so uh, the LeBrunsberry aesthetes, they had an absolute horror of photographic realism that the, the gross herd, the masses clamor for. Clive Bell disdained 17th century Dutch art as a collection of chromo photographs. Now, let's move on to Merv Emery's second and third paragraphs. What makes essays that tell stories about people so bad? So because they betray the true object of essayist criticism, the private individual. The private individual, guys, doesn't count for anything unless he's an intellectual. Right? The private individual is not a particular person with a particular story. Right? It's the idea that animates all these figures. It's that they, you know, that they matter. That, that now, Merv Emery says that the I in the first person essay is an artful construction. Watch as it flickers in and out of focus as a simulacrum, a chameleon, a made-up self, a series of distorting representations of the individual from whose consciousness it originates and from whose being it registers. Well, there's nothing inherently bad about essays that tell stories about people. Right? To, to believe this is inherently bad just requires a leap of faith into an insane world. I mean, I'm so darn grateful that we have these piercing insights from such high IQ people as Theodore Adorno and Walter Benjamin. I mean, how else could we possibly know that the object of essays about people is the individual? I mean, that would never have occurred to me if Adorno and Benjamin hadn't said it. Now, otherwise, I would have thought that the true object of essays about people was like black hole physics and monetary theory. 
when uh, Merve Emery states the private individual is not a proper name, she's essentially saying people count for nothing. They're just a bunch of useless eaters. So as for the idea that the I in the personal essay or in the, the YouTube live stream is an artful construction. You know what else are artful constructions? New York Review of Books Productions, The Pyramids, The Great Wall of China, Chichen Itza, Petra, Machu Picchu, the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, the Colosseum in Rome, the Taj Mahal in India. So why is something bad? Because it is an artful construction. How is something reduced by being artistic and constructed? For most people, I suspect artful constructions are of great more worth than unartful deconstructions. Remember, Emery says, watch as they flicker in and out of focus. So if the subject of an essay or a personal essay doesn't flicker, if it, if it remains in focus, then it is good. You know what stays in focus? My YouTube live streams, realistic writing, TV, movies. So what exactly is worthless about a subject, for example, that might flicker, that is created, that has chameleon qualities? Do only those objects that never change and always shine brightly deserve more of our respect? Why? Right? The individual does not originate from himself, does not only register in himself. Contrary to Merv Emery, the individual is always the product of two people. He is usually born, raised in a community, and knows himself through his interactions with others. So like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, Merv Emery regards the masses as a bunch of deplorables simply clinging to their guns and to their religion and to their first-person essays. And welcome to Hannity. All right, here we are, only eight days to go. Tonight, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, Senator Ron Johnson, they will all join us straight ahead. These races will likely determine the balance of power in the U.S. Senate, and it absolutely matters to all of you. Plus, we will bring you the latest polls, analysis, as now Republicans continue to surge all across the country. Now, even Washington state is very much in play. That Senate race, look at this right here, is a statistical tie. Real Clear Politics just moved it into the toss-up column. But let's be clear, the only thing that does matter is what happens on Election Day. So take nothing for granted. That means everybody has to vote. Everybody has to participate. Now, still at this point, Democrats, they are looking increasingly desperate. And as per usual, and as we predicted, they are attempting to scare you, the American people, with the same... Okay, we'll keep an eye on uh, Sean Hannity, see if he says anything interesting. But uh, meanwhile, let's, uh, let's get back to Merve Emery. The private individual is the ideological apparatus that puppets the genre's first-person mode of address. The I that posits itself as both the subject and the object of its own understanding and asks its readers to receive it as such. Now, most essayists and scholars who write about the personal essay agree that its eye is, by both necessity and choice, an artful construction. Watch, they say. Yeah, so what's, what's so wrong with being an artful construction? Sounds like a good thing to me. As it flickers in and out of focus is a simulacrum, a chameleon, a made-up self, a distorting representation of the individual from whose consciousness it originates and whose being it registers. And I should say that those descriptors all come from different people writing about the personal essay, ranging from Edward Hoagland to Karl Kraus to Philip Lopate. Yet having marveled at the first person's aesthetic flexibility and freedom, few critics, if any, put this claim through its dialectical paces. 
And a good question from the chat. Luke, you almost ever linger on a topic like this. It's an interesting one. I wish you would more often, but is there something personal going on? Yes, I just know that I, I read this essay by Mervy Emery uh, several times. And the first one or two times, I didn't have a strong reaction. I was just trying to understand where she was coming from. And then Friday, I remembered reading John Kerry's book on the intellectuals and the masses. And I thought, oh, wow, this is just part and parcel of the, the modern intellectuals' loathing for the masses. And so it also fits into the theme that uh, Tucker Carlson is always hitting on uh, about the, the elite versus the people. It hits on themes of populism, essentially. Populism believes that there is a public, right, that we can have a you know, cohesive united public that uh, bands together and opposes the elite. The elite can only rule by making coalitions, by joining in coalitions. But if we move from a diverse society made up of coalitions to a homogeneous public, then the elite lose power. The elite have self-interest in promoting a diverse society because that way they can pick off coalition partners and rule as against the public, the majority of the people who might otherwise form a populist revolution. So Merve Emery begins the fifth paragraph. Once labor has been cordoned off from life, once the pro productive activity of work has been extricated from the supposedly unproductive experience of dwelling, the private individual was born. So I don't think she's trying to argue here that the private individual was born in the 19th century. And, and that's absurd, right? We've had private individuals for 10,000 plus years. And uh, labor has never been cordoned off from life i mean just like the internet what we're doing right now is part of real life and what we say and do here affects how we behave out there in the world labor has always been a part of life many of our closest and most important bonds are formed at work many people look forward to going to work to see people they love and to take on challenges that they find stimulating or to do good in the world only an intellectual could believe that work is cordoned off from life but people have always had times for getting and times for being. Sometimes these times are not cordoned off, but run together. And this is not an invention of capitalism. So Merve Emery argues that the individual was only born in the 19th century. I mean, that should come as news to the billions of people who lived individual and communal lives before then. Just because you identify with a group does not mean that you don't have an individual identity. Like group identity and individual identity are not a matter of either or. They're just different facets of the one life. The internet, for example, just like work, is part of real life. What happens online spills into the rest of your life. What happens at work spills into the rest of your life, just like the rest of your life spills into your online life and your work life. Whatever you do shapes you, whether you do it online or at work. So Mervy Emery talking about this artificial creation of, of capitalism. He was blind to his own history as a derivative creature an artifact of political and economic processes that he had little incentives to question. Look, we're all blind. We're all filled with delusions, not just to political and economic processes, but to a whole host of things that we may have very little incentive to question because frequently it is to our advantage to have all sorts of non-rational beliefs. What if individual subjectivity were as much a fiction, an illusion, as the eye with which it so prettily speaks? What if stressing the artifice and ornament of the first person were a clever, if largely unconscious strategy 
for masking the personal essay's problematic, the internal limitations on what its author can and cannot say. What if... So there are clues when someone's not thinking very clearly, and one of the clues is when they use the word problematic. If something's a problem, just state the problem. Don't say problematic. Right? If something's disturbing, state exactly what's disturbing. If something's offensive, state exactly what's offensive. To take refuge in euphemism and slurs like problematic you know, indicates that you don't think very clearly. All right, we all have you know, non-rational beliefs. We all have exaggerated beliefs of our own significance. All right, if, if we didn't have an exaggerated belief of our own significance, we'd likely be crushed by our insignificance. And we're all derivative creatures, right? We're all deriving literally from parents and from society and from community and family and religion and tribe and geography and country, right? We're all derivative creatures. And simultaneously, we all have original, primary, basic qualities, right? And we, in turn, shape you know, other people. It's not like, oh, everything else is acting on us, but that we have no effect on anyone else. Other people derive from us, particularly if we become parents. So nobody springs out of the ground, right? We all derive from others, and in turn, others derive from us. And human beings have had blind spots from time immemorial. Nobody has ever been all-knowing. So therefore, because people have blind spots, they have no first-person subjective experience of any value. So here's more of the backstory to this. So I read her essay once, twice, about a month ago, and thought, okay. And then Friday afternoon, I just got hit by my memories of this John Kerry book, The Intellectuals and the Masses. And, and I saw a great response to the Merv Emery essay, and, and I just got fired up. And so if you remember my Friday afternoon stream, how fired up, how passionate I was to take on this Merv Emery essay. And then I thought about, oh my God, what a gorgeous sunset outside. Wow. Just, oh my God, the quality of the light and the sunsets and the sunrises in LA is to die for. Absolutely beautiful. So then I also thought about Tom Wolfe's famous 1989 essay, Stalking the Billion-Footed Beast, where he makes the argument for doing some reporting, that, that uh, going out there you know, experiencing life, taking notes, noticing how the world works makes for a much more compelling novel and how various intellectuals kind of derided him for, you know, paying all this detailed attention to, to daily life. So Friday night, I just had an amazing sleep. I, I got off of my bed. I got off of my mattress and I lay down on the floor and I was able to have my CPAP on, I had my CPAP on all night. And for some reason, even though I was tossing and turning until close to midnight, between midnight and 6 a.m., I had really good sleep. And I woke up just unbelievably strong and refreshed. And I mean, I just charged into my Shabbos. I mean, I was social for like seven hours on Shabbos. I just had you know a great time. I, I got really excited. And then because I was so excited, I didn't sleep well Saturday night, so... About 3.15 a.m., like, I'm, I'm up and thinking, can I get up now? No, let me, let me try. Let me try to get back to sleep. By 4 a.m., I just gave up. And what my mind was turning on was how to respond to this Merve Emery essay. So at 4 a.m. Sunday, I just got up and just started writing a very detailed blog post response to this Merve Emery essay. And so that's why I'm, I'm talking about it because I've put in a lot of work on it. 
So Mervy Emery says the domestic sphere was his incubator, his sanctuary from commercial and social considerations. Well, everything's an incubator. Right? This live stream could be an incubator for you. This live stream could incubate for you, you know, various possibilities for your own life or for a friend's life or for your community. A church can be an incubator, a coffee shop, a yoga studio, a school, a club. And it's not only the domestic sphere that incubates people. You know, do you know what else serves as a sanctuary from commercial and social considerations? Uh, watching a YouTube live stream, being in a church, a coffee shop, a yoga studio, a school, a club. Right? Many people work from home. There are not necessarily these clear dividers between the domestic and the productive. Right? While changing a child's diaper, a man may receive insights into his work and immediately transition from the domestic to the productive. Mervé Emery writes, there in, in this domestic sphere, he could retreat wide-eyed and mewling to probe what he believed to be his thoughts, lodged in his self, his mind, his body, and his home. Mewling. Right? Mule. So it means to cry, essentially. Mewling means to cry feebly. So is Mervé Emery exempt from this description? Does she ever cry feebly? Or is it only the masses who retreat wide-eyed and mewling? Is it only the masses who probe what they believe to be their thoughts? Or do intellectuals ever have thoughts that are derivative? Is it possible to retreat from the world without mewling and derivative thinking when, say, Moses or Paul or Elijah or Muhammad or Rabbi Akiva or Nietzsche or Augustine or Aquinas or Maimonides or Adam Smith retreated from the world? Did they have any original thoughts? So Walter Benjamin writes, the private individual who in the office has to deal with reality needs the domestic interior to sustain him in his illusions. So Benjamin says the ownership of property mirrors the ownership of subjectivity, meaning your own interior personal life. From this arise the phantasmagorias of the interior, which for the private man represents the universe. So is it only people in offices who deal in reality while people at home rest in illusion? I mean, that's nonsense. There's no sphere of life that is reliably divorced from reality. There's no sphere of life that is reliably divorced from illusion. We take our delusions with us, whether to the bedroom, the bathroom, the office, the street, the church, the yoga studio. So is the private man really unable to divorce his subjective preferences from the reality of the universe outside him? I mean, most people I know are able to combine having subjective experiences and have an exaggerated sense of their own importance, along with awareness of things outside of themselves. I mean, if you didn't have this ability, you'd keep running into walls. I mean, was there no subjectivity prior to private property? Do people in communist regimes have no subjective experiences? On what basis would one argue that subjective experiences are limited to those who have the possibility of owning property? Like only intellectuals would believe such nonsense. It's the conceptual limitation of the genre or its interpolation of both reader and writer into the ideological process of individualism. It's glittering veneer of expressive freedom. It's seductive promise of speaking and writing as a self-determining subject. What if no performance of stylish confession or sly concealment? No amount of fashionably anguished hand-wringing over the essay's complicity or her privilege could shake this ideology loose? What if it only intensified its enchantments? To answer these questions about the personal essay, its mode of address, and the private individual that enlivens both, 
requires a biography of sorts, though assuredly not a personal one. According to Walter Benjamin, the private individual was conceived sometime between 1830 and 1948, during the reign of Louis-Philippe, the citizen king and first bourgeois monarch. Under his rule, the European ruling class and the middle class came together to realize their defining goal, the separation of the public from the private domain, where, as Marx observes, the bourgeoisie could retreat to rejoice in property, family, religion, and order while nevertheless continuing to participate in the exploitative politics of the public realm. Once labor had been cordoned off from life, once the productive activity of work had been separated from the apparently unproductive experience of dwelling, the private individual was born. He was quite naturally blind, deaf, and dumb to his own history as a derivative creature, an artifact of political and economic processes that he possessed little incentive to interrogate. The domestic sphere was his incubator, his sanctuary from any commercial and social considerations. There he could retreat, wide-eyed and mewling, to probe what he earnestly believed to be his thoughts, lodged in his self, his mind, his body, his home. Okay, so where you are does have an effect on you. I'm not arguing to the contrary. Great article in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago, How You Feel Depends on Where You Are. Right? Your location will shape your mood. Right? The places we choose to spend time shape our personalities. Right? So all this you know, field of, of psychology, personality psychology, which is entirely based upon people you know, bubbling in answers, you know, self-reporting, uh, bubbling in answers about their personalities. Well, all this idea that we have these inherent personalities, our personalities depend upon where we are. Right? Our state of mind can be reliably predicted by where we are. So where you are tells us something about how you are and how you feel about yourself. Right? So people's long-standing psychological traits you know, may predict where they spend their time. You know, extroverts prefer bars, cafes, parties, and restaurants. Introverts prefer to be at home. But with so many people stuck at home, where we are shapes us. Right? People feel more extroverted, more agreeable, more conscientious when they are in other places compared to when they are at home. People feel more disorganized and chaotic when they are at home. I think that's quite interesting. The private individual who in the office needs to deal with reality needs the domestic interior to sustain him in his illusions, Benjamin wrote in the Arcades Project explaining how the material ownership of private property mirrored the illusory ownership of subjectivity. He continued, from these derive the phantasmagorias of the interior, which for the private man represents the universe. In the interior, he brings together the far away and the long ago. For Benjamin, the best representative of the private individual was the collector the true resident of the interior as an architectural space of living and an existential space of being. For us, it might be the personal essay collection, which, now that the apartments are smaller and decluttering is in, props up the same ideological fiction. The purpose of this talk, then, is to argue that the personal essay's historic and aesthetic function has been to persuade us not just that personhood is beautiful or good or unique, but that it is primordial 
that individual subjectivity and its expression exist prior to the social formations that give rise to it. Ah, right. So what forms social formations that in turn affect the individual subjective experience? It's individuals with subjective experiences that create social formations. Social formations don't emerge straight out of the earth. They are not dictated from heaven and installed by divine fiat on earth. Where the hell does she, Merve Emery think that these social formations came from? They came from individuals having subjective experiences. So for Walter Benjamin, the best representatives of the private individual was the collector of decorative objects, the true resident of the interior. So the private individual who loves his wife and children, he's only collecting objects. The private individual who enjoys having his friends over, who entertains, who's a valuable part of the community, right? He's only collecting objects. That's, that's all he's doing. And then Merve Emery says, for us, it might be the personal essay collection which props up the same ideology. Now, what ideology is that? The ideology that people who need people are the luckiest people in the world? I mean, what do you call that ideology? What, what heinous ideology is this? And what basis would one argue that this is the result of capitalism? So prior to the free market, people didn't need to share their lives with other people? There's no strict dividing line between texting a friend, emailing a friend, calling a friend, and writing a first-person essay. Many of my first-person essays and my first-person YouTube live streams have developed from conversations with other people, from text messages with other people, from emails with other people, from phone calls, from Zooms with other people, from reading what someone else has texted or emailed me, arguing with my friends. Merve Emery writes, the personal essay's historical and aesthetic function has been to persuade us not just that personhood is beautiful or good, but that it is primordial. Right? If I write an essay telling you that I feel small in a big world, I mean, that does not mean I am ignorant of the role that society plays in my feelings. I might just want to share one thing in my life without the burden of examining all things. Is that permitted? Can I do that? Is that kosher? Just to share one thing without the burden of having to examine wider social formations. An essay does not have to do everything to have merit. Like LeBron James is not a lesser person because he's not a brilliant biologist. A movie director isn't a nullity because he can't do linear algebra. The psychologist is not worthless because he doesn't play in the NBA. I mean, after a man makes love to his woman, is he supposed to negate the power of the experience they shared? because they did not discuss gender stereotypes in capitalism while he was ejaculating? Like, I suspect most stand-up comics are not the type of people I'd want checking the engines before the plane takes off. But does this make these comics useless? Like, Tom Brady may not know much about the Jerusalem Talmud. Does that invalidate Tom Brady's accomplishments? Merve Emery writes, This is a lie, the lie that subtends bourgeois individualism and all its intrusions into language, art, and education. As Adorno explains, Theodore Adorno of the Frankfurt School. Notice she does not say that Adorno claims. She says, Adorno explains. She is aligning with Adorno's perspective that individuals in a bourgeois society are nothing, that they have no importance. They have no subjective experiences worthy of writing about. Right? The word subtends here it means invalidate. So Theodore Adorno and Merve Emery are arguing that the masses are just a product, never Producers. They have no life force. 
Let me tell you, friends. This is serious. Intellectuals sense my power, and they sense my life essence, all the while denying its existence in their, in their fancy and personal essays. I want you to know I do not avoid intellectuals, but I do deny them my essence. Like a foreign substance, I am convinced, has been introduced into our precious bodily fluids without the knowledge of the individual, certainly without any choice. That's the way your hardcore commie works. I first became aware of this during the physical act of love. There was this profound sense of fatigue and a feeling of emptiness followed. Luckily, I was able to interpret these feelings correctly. It all boiled down to three words. Loss of essence. So if you prick me, do I not bleed? How dare these intellectuals, these professors, deny the power and value of my subjective experiences, my first-person essays and live streams. I might not be curing cancer, but who's to say that my shared subjective experiences on my YouTube channels are any less valuable than Merve Emery's literary efforts? So Emery writes, The personal essay appears as the purest, most unflinching, aesthetic expression of the lie for the simple reason that for an essay to qualify as personal in the first place, the primacy of the private individual must be presupposed implicitly but by the same token, with all the more complicity Adorno wrote. So if I publish an essay about one spectator's experience of a presidential inauguration, I automatically assume the lie that this individual's experience is more important than everything else that happened on that occasion. Maybe I just want to tell one person's story. Maybe I just want to tell you my story. Like That doesn't make necessarily a claim to these stories having primacy over other experiences. If I publish an essay about the first time I fell in love, I must assume the primacy of the private individual. Maybe I just assume that there are some people who would derive a small amount of pleasure from my words. Is it possible to publish something about your life without claiming that your life must have priority over everything else in the universe? Maybe one day I work 15 hours in the society rescuing the homeless. Then I come home. I dash off a blog post in 15 minutes about my summer of love in 1982. Gosh, I must be a delusional egomaniac spreading misinformation to share what it means to me to first have a girlfriend. This is a lie. The lie that subtends bourgeois individualism and all its intrusions into language, art, and education, as Adorno explains in the essay as form. And this is Adorno. The lie extends from the elevation of historical concepts in historical languages to primal words, to academic instruction in creative writing, and to primitiveness pursued as a handicraft, to recorders and finger painting, in which pedagogical necessity acts as though it were metaphysical virtue. The personal essay appears as the purest, most unflinching and degraded expression of this lie, certainly more so than finger painting or playing the recorder, I think. So Merv Emery goes on to several paragraphs quoting from Virginia Woolf. Apparently Virginia Woolf found the growth of newspapers and their first-person essays to lead to feelings of oversaturation and boredom. Right, But boredom is a subjective experience. It is not a divine commandment. What Virginia Woolf finds boring may be enthralling to another person. What Woolf and Emery truly loathe is the participation of the masses in culture. They hate this flattening and this loss of status for their 
social class, right? When one feels that one must attend to a very large number of people demanding public recognition, this is not boredom. This feeling is overwhelm. This feeling is mental illness, right? These feelings are very distinct from boarding, boredom. This is codependency, right? No matter the number of first-person essays published, nobody outside of a certain parts of publishing is forced to attend to them. Your first-person essay does not diminish the quality of my life. Only a person who rages against reality will lose his mind over this. A normal person will live his life undisturbed if a webzine such as xojane.com publishes another first-person essay. Like, I haven't played video games since 1984, but there is a multi-billion dollar video game industry out there that does not harm my life. If a friend does not want to meet up with me this evening for a walk because he'd rather play video games, I have other things to do with my time, right? I'm not going to claim that his life is a fiction. So, Emery and Wolf, ironically, they are fired with publications about subjective experiences so long as they abide by university norms. But if outsiders attempt to use the cultural means of production that these intellectuals thought that they had exclusive control over, but if, if the masses try to do this and publish unsanctioned first-person accounts, you know, howls of rage and contempt ensue. Right? You'll notice here just the complete inability of Virginia Woolf and Merve Emery to mount a rational case against the potential value of first-person essays as well as social media posts or YouTube videos. All they can do is point and sputter against straw men. Like what personal essayist insists that the personal essay is the most natural way of speaking? Nobody. Must the first-person essay be primarily an expression of opinion? No. Is it not possible to relate something beyond opinion? Why not experience? Right? Right now, I can step away from my opinions. I can let go of everything I think I know. And I can enter a realm where I'm simply observing rather than judging. And you can enter that realm while writing or doing a YouTube video. And, and why is literary style more important than every other quality? What about merit? And if art and entertainment cannot be combined into a mass and set to a collective purpose... Is it useless? Why? Right. Virginia Woolf cannot ima imagine personal essays composing a mass, a totality that can be integrated and set to a collective and social and political purpose. Right. Writing a first-person essay does not insist on the primacy of the individual any more than if I watch an hour of the National Football League, I'm insisting on the primacy of the NFL over every other way of spending time. I love the Dallas Cowboys... It has never occurred to me that everybody else should love this team. I vote Republican every time. It's never occurred to me that other parties will not sometimes be more right than my own. I can choose to eat chocolate cake for breakfast tomorrow morning without insisting that this is the primary way for everybody to eat breakfast. And I can love you know, my girlfriend without insisting that everybody else love her as much. And we have these intellectuals yearning for total control of the cultural means of production. They hate the internet because here anyone can create and criticize without their approval. So people such as Bervé Emery believe they are the objective truth seekers when in reality, they're just as partisan as the rest of us. And we know we are partisans while these professors think they are above prejudice and petty folkways. Bervé Emery writes, framed by teachers of writing as conversational and chatty, characterized by its air of spontaneity, 
first-person essay suggested the author's personality is a spectacular structure. Its refusal to subject the writer to direct observation was an integral part of its signature. So some first-person essays suggest the author's personality is a spectacular structure because some people's personality is a spectacular structure. Other first-person essays reveal the author's shame and delusion and feeling small in a big world. Right? That I am writing in the first person, that I am speaking right now in the first person, does not mean that I cannot open up my blog post or this live stream to direct observations from other parties. In fact, they are flowing in a stream down my YouTube video right now. So Emery writes, The personal essay distinguished itself from the beginning by its failure to maintain the practice of triangulation between the essayist, her reader, and the object that shared their attention. It indulged the temptation to fall into monologue. So the only way to write a first-person essay is to triangulate between the essayist, the reader, and the object? Why? That seems a tad totalitarian. Like if a bloke decided to write a first-person essay about his experience removing dead bodies from Auschwitz gas chambers, and he wrote without using the sacred triangulation method, should he be condemned to another gulag? Do, do the professors want to gas him for his sacrilege? I mean, none of the claims of Merve Emery's paragraph here stand up to examination. Like any word by loathsome repetition becomes emetic, meaning inducing vomit. And God forbid some authors should fall into monologue. I mean, what have monologues ever contributed to the world? God forbid some author not commit to inadvertency. What has direct address and clarity ever contributed to the world? This is for the simple reason that in order for an essay to qualify as personal in the first place, the primacy of the private individual must be presupposed implicitly, but by the same token with all the more complicity Adorno writes. And so he concludes, such essays confuse themselves with the same fiaton with which the enemies of the essay form confuse it. By my account, then, the personal essay is a modern formation and a formation of modernity. It is a wholly different creature from the essay birthed by Montaigne in 1570 and nurtured through the 17th century by Sir Thomas Brown, Thomas Fuller, and Abraham Cowley. Each of these essayists is less willing than the next to disentangle the knowledge of the individual from the condition of man or nature. A commitment reflected by how their prose slides with wonderful abandon into and out of the various third person singulars. And I spent an afternoon running all of Montaigne's essays through one of those websites that basically counts all of the words for you. And it very helpfully told me that he and one appear with greater frequency than I across all 10 volumes of the essays. The I with and of which the personal essay speaks proclaims its distinctiveness from the we's that crowd the 18th century periodical essays of Joseph Addison and Richard Steele. Okay, let me just uh, read a little ahead here from Merve Emery's essay in the New York Review of Books. It says, a direct address could not be avoided entirely as inherent in the use of the first person, but uh, its influence on essay writing and reading could be minimized. It could be made to harmonize with competing forms of address that were more depersonalized in the kind of friendship they imagined that held impersonality to be a sign of the essay's aesthetic and ethical success. So why is an ethic essay more ethical and aesthetic the more impersonal it gets? Where is it written in the heavens that the impersonal is always better than the personal? 
On what basis would one claim that the impersonal address in the first-person essay is more aesthetic and ethical? One can't. It is an argument that as much objective validity as strawberry ice cream is the best. I don't care that these intellectuals load the public. I care that they can't say what they mean and they can't mean what they say. That, to me, is a more serious aesthetic and ethical shortcoming than any of the putative crimes of personal first-person essays. Merve Emery writes, uh, Why are people attracted to stories about individuals? Right? Because this allows bourgeois subjects to accrue various economic, cultural, and social rewards. Once the production of personhood comes bound to and administered by pedagogy, its illusions gain in intensity and reach, as does the personal essay. So all work is created by individuals. Right? Stating that work has nothing to do with the individual who created it is an interesting artistic choice. It might come with some upsides, it might come with some downsides, just like any other approach, including the first-person essay. Right? No one genre is set out by the will of heaven to rule other genres. as well as the theys that throng the 19th century metaphysical disquisitions of Lee Hunt and William Hazlitt. It bears a distant family resemblance to Charles Lamb's Essays of Eliah, the quintessence of the spirit of bourgeois intimacy, according to Maria Paz. Yet if Lamb begets the line in the mid-19th century, and that would make sense given the kind of historical framing that I've offered for the personal essay, then he nevertheless takes some care to thwart its autobiographical mode of referentiality. Writing under a pseudonym lets him throw a small but shattering wrench into the personal essay's production of individual personhood, its demand for a single subject whose identity is defined by the uncontestable readability of his proper name, as Paul Deman put it in a related discussion of autobiography. No one has approached the essays of Elia, writes Virginia Woolf in The Decay of Essay Writing. Published nearly a quarter century before Benjamin's The Arcades Project and a half century before Adorno's The Essay is Form, Woolf's lament about the aesthetic decline of the personal essay grasped the problem of telling stories about people not head on, but symptomatically and, since there's no harm in admitting it, snobbishly. Okay, so why are people in general more interested in stories about people than in literary deconstructions, right? Only an intellectual could hate that people basically care about people. All work is created by individuals. Mervé Emery writes, while one could read individual essay collections to trace how the market emboldened the aesthetics of confession, parody presents a more fruitful opportunity for understanding the personal essay's evolving commercial function through the 1990s and 2000s. Why? On what basis, I ask you, are parodies of the first-person essay inherently superior to the real thing? Well, Emery writes, the narrator of a personal essay draws our attention to the experience of a single individual, while the parody can ventriloquize and channel the genre's conceptual production of personhood as a saleable commodity. So drawing attention to the experience of a single individual may well shed valuable light on the undervalued experience of millions of people from the particular we often get a profound sense of the whole a laboratory need only draw a vial of my blood to get important insights it's not the size of the blood draw that matters it's the quality of the information derived from the blood so too with the first person essay 
It is not the focus or the voice of the essay that matters most. It is the quality and the importance of what it reveals. So there is, in essence, no shortcut to assessing merit. There is no magic key to great writing. Right? That, that a genre has conventions does not invalidate the genre. Are there really no first-person essays grounded in the peculiarities of prose? What does grounding the essay in the peculiarities of prose even mean? Is there no tension anymore in the first-person essay between the personal and impersonal? Sounds to me like Emery might build a stronger case if she quoted from the most acclaimed first-person essays of the past two decades and showed how they were excrement. But then she'd have to make her case against something concrete rather than against straw men. Mervé Emery writes, Under what conditions is content king? When the personal essay makes the production of personhood not only publicly legible, but monetizable. Well, I put the phrase content is king into Google. I chose the meaning search. <clears throat> I found the quote, content is king, used in conjunction with content marketing and search engine optimization. It implies that unique, high-quality, interesting, and relevant content contributes significantly to the success companies on the Internet. So that's what it means, content is king. Now, nobody aside from students is forced to write first-person essays. If one chooses to do so, it's hard to argue that one is being exploited, right? If you only want to retail cliches that go with the exploitation angle, that is as good as it gets for the pedant. She does not open by offering a history of bourgeois individualism, but by decrying its most obvious social and institutional manifestations. First, there's the spread of education, which ritualizes the subjective illusion by stressing the personal and individual nature of all one's failures and successes. Second, there's the proliferation of print culture, all the tracts, pamphlets, advertisements, gratuitous copies of magazines, and the literary production of friends that arrive by post, by van, by messenger, at all hours of the day, Wolf complains. For her, the British public sphere is characterized by all manner of excess, beginning with a dramatic increase in literacy rates, then... Right, not too happy about the dramatic increase in literacy rates reducing the intellectual's hold over the cultural means of production. So Merve Emery writes, The personal essay's appraisal of the economic situation reveals why the triangulation of reader, writer, and object secured by the familiar essay is no longer possible. Fewer places will pay for it, fewer people are trained to produce it. So... I'm going to go out on the limb here and say I suspect the triangulation of reader, writer, and object is still possible. I see no reason why it cannot be so, even though fewer paces supposedly will pay for it and fewer people are trained to do it. Maybe the personal essay can translate to YouTube live streams, to social media. Concerned for the reader, combined with an interest in the object, does not require a graduate school education, even a longshoreman like Eric Hoffer can do it. Mervé Emery writes, The confessional has proved a highly successful strategy for extracting literary production from an increasingly de-skilled workforce that needs to do little more than share experiences. And what is the evidence that the workforce is increasingly de-skilled? Like, Emery laments the precarious conditions under which creative labor is performed. How about the frequently precarious conditions under which non-creative labor is performed? Life is inherently precarious. 
we can make it more precarious or less precarious by our personal choices and by our collective choices. Now, the power of collective choice to change conditions does not invalidate the power of personal choice to change conditions. The individual and your society do not live on separate planets. Emery writes, What we ought to mourn, then, is not the decline of the personal essay, its ethos, and its aesthetics persist. Rather, it is the much longer, slower death of the conditions that gave rise to the essay's unintimate friendship, a familiarity mediated not by a spectacular personhood, but by the skillful cultivation of style. So there are still spectacular personhoods out there, and sometimes these are more important than the skillful cultivation of style. And anyone who thinks that style is inherently more important than the story lives in a rarefied world far removed from the concerns of ordinary people. Tom Wolfe, uh, before he died, says, I think the real future is nonfiction. Memoirs never die. And in his famous 1989 Essay for Harper's Magazine, Stalking the Billion-Footed Beast, Tom Wolfe wrote, The young person who decides to become a writer because he has a subject or issue in mind, because he has something to say, is a rare bird. Most make that decision because they realize they have a certain musical facility with words. Since poetry is the music of language, outstanding young poets are by no means rare. As he grows older, however, our young genius keeps running into this damnable problem of material, of what to write about. Since by now he realizes... That literature's main arena is prose, whether in fiction or the essay. Even so, he keeps things in proportion. He tells himself that 95% of literary genius is the unique talent that is secure inside some sort of crucible in his skull. 5% is the material, the clay his talent will mold. I doubt that there is a writer over 40, concludes Wolf, who does not realize in his heart of hearts that literary genius in prose consists of proportions more on the order of 65% material and 35% the talent in the sacred crucible. So, sure, the first-person essay is indeed a genre filled with illusions. Now, please name me a genre not filled with illusions. I'm still waiting. As, as kind of allegorical of some of yeah. my own experiences with translated literature over the past um, over the past year. So as I was reading it, I was thinking, and I'm curious to hear how you feel about this, Adam, whether or not a kind of... Um, uh, a flock of judges, a herd of judges, a school of judges, I don't know what you call them, uh, whether or not they can achieve agnosia, whether they can become a <laughs> multi-celled, multi-celled being uh, that, that is, is moving uh, synchronously with, with one another. Um, yeah. It's definitely a trouble of judges. I'm very confident <laughs> <laughs> about that. Um, well, I mean that you know when it so Mervé judged the international. Can we see your stack again of all the books you were? Yeah, the but please, I, if anyone from Fitzcarraldo is here, I'm so sorry that I'm showing you the 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 white covers for books of Jacob. I know you're all sensitive about this. I'm um, sorry, Fitzcarraldo. It's, it's just it's just the one that I marked up. I, I'm I'm really really sorry. I we all do I, that in advance. I just didn't want to like yeah. I just didn't want to get rid of you know the the copy that I had you know, assiduously dog-eared and, and scribbled in the margins of, so. And that's your book. <laughs> you know, once you mark something up, it's kind of yours. You know, you don't, you can't use a different book after that. Yeah, yeah. So, and so I was judging National Book Critics Circle this year. And I do think when it's working, it is like an organism and you can begin to learn each other's tastes and you can begin to have 
small disputes and small kind of recognitions and alliances and connections. And, oh, if you like this book, maybe you like this book. And those kind of conversations, which are going on all over the world all the time, I think when a group panel is going well, it does happen, doesn't it? Did, was that your experience? Uh, I'm trying to think about what I can and can't and can't yes. say. So, so maybe I can say something fairly neutral about process. So something that I that I really really um, admire about our chair Frank Wynn uh, is that the way he would run a, a judging meeting was was as such. So we would have X number of books that we had to discuss, and he would begin by calling on one of the four of us at mm. random to to yes yes so it felt very much like you had to be prepared right you had to be prepared because it was like being at school yeah. and being cold called and so you had to be prepared to discuss any of the books that were on the docket for the day and he has this very very brilliant way of opening the conversation and inviting you not only to offer a judgment but also to offer an explanation or a justification for how you arrived at your judgment. Mm. And then he also had a very brilliant way of taking what you said and kind of distilling it to its essence and kind of. And that's the absolutely adorable Professor Mervé Emery. So getting back to John Kerry's terrific 1993 book about the intellectuals and the masses. And he's got a chapter here on Wyndham Lewis and Adolf Hitler. And he talks about Hugh Trevor Roper, the historian, in his introduction to his edition of Hitler's Table Talk, maintaining that Adolf Hitler's ideas on culture were trivial, half-baked, and disgusting. This seems questionable. Because there are marked similarities between the cultural ideas promulgated in the Fuhrer's writings and conversations and those of our leading modernist intellectuals. Hitler believed just as strongly as the intellectuals in the eternal value of what intellectuals consider great art. Right? He, he believed very much in the Western intellectual stereotype of the poor student, high-minded and half-starved, spending his last few coins on erudite tones, scorning the fat burghers, right? the fat bourgeoisie whom he glimpses through the plate glass of restaurants. As a student in Vienna, Hitler would go hungry to buy books. He would register his righteous disgust at the low level of culture he saw around him. He felt pain at the masses' regrettable weakness for smutty literature, artistic tripe, and theatrical banalities. Like many English intellectuals, he blamed this degeneracy on the mass media, deploring the poison spread among the masses by gutter journalism and cinema bilge. His own inclinations were undeviatingly highbrow. He would bring home books by the Kilo on art history, architecture, religion, and philosophy. Nietzsche was often on his lips. He could quote Schopenhauer by the page. He admired the work of Cervantes, Defoe, Swift, Goethe, and Carlyle. His musical heroes were Mozart, Bruckner, Haydn, and Bach. He idolized Wagner in painting. He praised the achievements of the old masters, particularly Rembrandt and Rubens. He strongly advocated state subsidies for the arts. He despised America, despised vulgar American materialism, sharing the attitudes of English and European intellectuals. He believed just as firmly as T.S. Eliot or Wyndham Lewis in the permanence of aesthetic values. In Mein Kampf, he contrasts the all-time greats such as Shakespeare, Schilling, and Goethe with the degeneracy of modern culture. The creative spirit of the Periclean age as manifested in the Parthenon is one of his touchstones. 
He venerates the divine spark as it flashes forth from the shining brow of genius. Art is higher and more valuable, he insists, than science or philosophy. It is more permanent than politics. Music and architecture record the path of humanity's ascent. Nothing can take the place of the great painter or poet. The highest realm is that of artistic creativity. The inner force of a nation comes from its worship of men of genius. Right, so what exactly is trivial, half-baked, or disgusting about these propositions? Right, these are the dominant propositions of early, mid, and late 20th century intellectuals, such as uh, George Steiner. So Hitler believed that it was the presence of a divine spark that makes art great, that God underwrote the music of Mozart, the plays of Shakespeare, other intellectual performances. The power of great artists and writers, according to Mein Kampf, is an innate product of divine grace. This opposition between the natural aristocrat and the masses is another large element of Hitler's thought, finds its counterpart in 20th century intellectuals. Principle underlying all nature's operations, Hitler stresses, is the aristocratic principle for Hitler. As for the intellectuals, follows that there is or should be some connection between cultural eminence and political power. The supreme natural aristocrat, Hitler argues, is the genius. It is the shining example of genius that makes clear the baseness of the masses and the folly of parliamentary democracy. Creative act of genius is always a protest against the inertia of the masses. Democracy, by vesting power in the dunderhead multitude, flies in the face of the aristocratic principle of nature. So in common with other disciples of Nietzsche, Hitler conceives of a moral universe in which the dead weight of the mass is pitted against the eternal privilege of force and energy in the gifted individual. He shares the customary intellectual scorn for the newly rich, whom he regards as false aspirers to nobility unacceptable from the standpoint of good breeding. He becomes rather muddled in his advocacy of individualism. So intellectuals naturally regard themselves as individuals. They strongly support individual freedoms in that context. On the other hand, the mass, in opposition to which individuals construct their individuality, is by definition not composed of individuals, so cannot expect to be treated with the consideration that individuals merit. So we get this uneasy situation in which some individuals... Some human beings are individuals, but most are not. So Hitler hymns the individual genius. He attacks Marxism on the ground that it repudiates the personal wealth of the individual. So Hitler's conclusions a little differ from those of, say, an H.G. Wells. Right? They're you know, filled with hostility for the great masses. Hitler, like H.G. Wells and these other leading intellectuals, greatly concerned about uh, population growth, that uh, the masses must be disciplined and directed by the elite. The mass media must be rescued from profiteers, must be thoroughly cleaned up, according to Hitler and the intellectuals. The press, the cinema, advertising must have the stains of pollution removed, must be placed in the service of a cultural idea. I mean, this is similar thinking to our leading intellectuals today. So uh, Hitler regarded the masses as essentially effeminate. He had all these mutually irreconcilable versions of the masses. One, it was effeminate. 
Another that it desired a strong dominant male. That the masses must be nationalized. The Nazi movement must keep contact with the masses, adapting its propaganda to the lowest intelligence and putting across a simple message. Hitler also had an alternative imagination of the masses as simply children. He divided the masses into the bourgeoisie, whom he despised, and the workers, for whom he expressed you know, profound veneration. A lot of intellectuals do the same thing. Right, let's get a little bit more from uh, Merve Emery here. Passing it on to the next person and saying, well, do you agree with this judgment of X and this justification of Y? And so by the time you went around the table, by the time you went through all four people, uh, and he would only really ever intervene if, if there was some kind of a, a deadlock or people you know, uh, were unwilling to commit to opinions one way or another. By the time you went around the room through all four of us, what 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 I actually ended up feeling was like I could have written a kind of 3000 word piece about any of the 137 books that we read right. uh, based on the kind of conversational maneuvers that Frank was very, very good at orchestrating. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. And so I often think like those are just conversations I should be having in the academy all the time. But I almost never do. Never. Never. never, no, never. And and so this was actually a, a kind of rare and, and, and sacred space for me uh, to be able to do what I, you know, had, had always believed the essence of my job was, which was to to judge and to and to justify and to persuade and to argue. Um, and and I did think that, you know, by the end of it, Yes, it it did feel like you know we were kind of functioning in in um, in, in in concert with one another in a very almost um, intuitive sort of way. And before and we talk about that, I mean, it sounds delightful. And no, I'm really grieving. I'm really grieving the end of it. it. Like I feel deeply depressed that like I'm you know I, I keep thinking like maybe I should write to all of them and be like, do you guys just want to like like zoom and read something? Book club. Together? Yeah, yeah, book club. Yeah. And books a month of hot international lit. Yeah, why not? Well, that's the other thing. I think I have some kind of Stockholm syndrome because if I'm not reading like two novels a day, I feel like a worthless, like lazy piece of shit. So yeah. <laughs> Did you have to adjust your your I've read that you're a very prolific reader and that like eight o'clock onward is your reading time at night uh, and we're interrupting your reading time right now. Did you find you had to set aside more time to read for this? Uh, yeah, I definitely did. I mean, I don't watch much. So so I have like a kind of perverse television watching habit where I will watch the first episode of something on Netflix and then I'll just watch the last episode. So I don't oh, have nice. to bother with anything that happens in the middle. But now yeah. I couldn't watch any episodes, neither the first nor the last. So <laughs> it got rid of my very kind of austere and um, uh, uh, nonsensical or illogical television watching habit. So, so there's that. <laughs> I mean, I, I think uh, what was interesting for me was that, you know, I have two little kids, one's four and one's six, and the, the six-year-old has kind of really come into his own as a reader this year. And, and what, was, what was nice was setting aside time when I would have had to be doing something else with him, hmm. but now I can just read with him. Oh, so a lot of, my, a lot of the, the time that I stole to read for the booker was... Uh, was childcare time that had been converted into silent reading next to one another time. So, yeah. Oh, that's very beautiful. Well, I'm not going to ask a follow-up on your insane Netflix habit, although... 
Okay, that's going to do it. Take care. Bye-bye.